Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a partner and managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, as usual, I'm joined for our monthly chat by my colleague and engagement manager here at Back Bay, Christian Tino. Christian, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Indeed. Likewise. So we are recording this on the 15th of December, 2023. And so as 2023 comes to an end, uh, we thought we'd discuss a few of the key product approvals over the past year. We'll talk about three classes and indications where there were some approval. Uh, The most notable with news this past week was the CRISPR and Vertex approval of Exacel by the FDA, the first CRISPR-based genetic medicine approved in the United States. And there's been a few other approvals that will also tick through, I think, with some significant strategic implications to the companies. Uh, We'll talk about the Biogen Sage approval and the GenMab and Roche approvals for the CD20 by specifics. So Christian, maybe let's start with the Biogen Sage approval. So they were pretty impactful and, you know, particularly in the neurology and neuropsych. So why is that the case? Yeah. So I think this it was an interesting one because, you know, I, I, you know, obviously the Biogen and Sage signed this very large expansive partnership in in 2020, included a lot of upfront cash to around 900 million, a very large equity investment in Sage. So it was a very big commitment from Biogen in, in sort of the, the neuropsych space. And obviously, you know, neurology had been a space that you know, historically has been, been important for, for Biogen. And then at the time, Zeranolone was kind of the, the you know, key focus of that deal. It was in phase three studies in both major depressive disorder as well as postpartum depression. And, you know, obviously major depressive disorder being the larger of those two indications was really the, the key focus mm-hmm. um, of that of that partnership. I think the other interesting thing was that, you know, at the time, I think it was a very different situation for Biogen in 2020 yeah. versus, you know, how things have transpired in the past couple of years. You've, you've had Tecvidera losing exclusivity and a lot of patent challenges there, and they've seen declining revenues, you know, already beginning in 2021. That's been falling off. And then, of course, uh, the much anticipated launch of Aduhelm wound up being a a, a bit of a debacle, uh, if we're, you know, uh, just putting it lightly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that really, really ratcheted up the level of importance for, of this particular deal for, for Biogen and really needing to fill kind of a near term win and get a sort of tr- commercial traction with a late stage asset. And so... The product was approved um, by the FDA in August, but the kind of major issue was that it was only approved in postpartum depression yeah. and did not, you know, receive the CRL in, in in major depressive disorder, which you know, as you probably would expect, was not what both you know the the companies and the street were were looking to see. Um, Sage, in particular, you know, lost about fifty percent of market value yeah. on the day of the announcement. Um, and you know, the reason being that, you know, major depressive disorder was, you know, over a 1 billion opportunity for, for the product while, you know, PPDs, you know, about a fifth of that based on kind of peak projections from analysts that, that we've seen. And that kind of precipitated a lot of restructuring and kind of, you know, workforce size reduction at Sage since then. I think it kind of leaves Biogen in a bit of a position where, you know, obviously this has not gone the way that they'd want it to, you know, things are. I think maybe getting a bit more back on track for them with Lakembi, but I think they're mm-hmm. you know still have some outstanding questions in terms of addressing the need to replace the revenue that they you know were anticipating or have you know have been losing with you know Techvidera and things like that. So I think you know it'll be interesting to see kind of how they continue to to move forward from a from yeah. a BD perspective and and what goes on there. 
I do think the one interesting thing, though, is that, you know, in, in postpartum depression, this is a pretty big innovation yeah. in yeah. that, you know, there's no oral therapies available. Um, you know, this is this could really expand the number of women that are able to access treatment for PPD. There's a lot of excitement among the clinical community here. So I think that, you know, it's, it's important to, to not lose sight of that, where from a you know pure market value point of view, this was a, a disappointing result for, for both of the companies. But I think, you know, certainly there's some 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 positives in terms of the clinical side of things here as you, as you think about the kind of PPD opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been interesting this year, particularly, and maybe it's something that we can cover early next year is is a lot of the movement in the neuropsychiatric space, right? So you have some of that data from Karuna coming out and some interesting raises from earlier stage companies that were announced in the last quarter. So maybe that's something that we can uh, uh, pick up and dive into a bit more. And not to mention a, uh, you know, a small acquisition that took place a couple of weeks ago with uh, AbbVie and Cerevel for, uh, you know, I think it was 8.7 billion. So also a lot yeah. of, you know, continued interest from, from, from large pharma there. You know, I think it, it would be interesting to see kind of how things things play out from a development point of view. I think you still have the same concerns that there've always been around, you know, a large placebo response. I think this sort of suicidal ideation was a key issue um, in the in the MDD trial for Zoranolone mm, yeah. here. Um, but you know, I think as things kind of continue to improve from a patient selection point of view and sort of the endpoints and metrics that are used in these these studies, you know, hopefully that's something that that can advanced therapies forward a bit here because obviously this has been a really challenging area for for the industry the past you know 10 15 20 years yeah certainly certainly okay so switching gears uh a bit over to oncology and specifically hematology so we had uh, a couple approvals for uh, bispecific antibodies specifically those targeting CD20 from uh, GenMab and AbV uh, product, as well as as Roche. So why don't you set the stage there? Yeah. So you know, I think that there's been a lot of talk, certainly the you know in the recent years about, of of course, you know, CAR T and engineered cell therapies mm -hmm. in 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 the lymphoma space, and increasingly, you know, starting to think more about uh, you know outside of autologous products, or, or which can be challenging from a you know manufacturing and timeline point of view and sure. turnaround, which you know a lot of that I think has been largely you know, improved in, in, in recent years, but there's been, I think, a lot of focus on whether it's, you know, bispecific antibodies like this, allogeneic uh, CAR-Ts, um, things like that, where that are a bit more off the shelf. And so, you know, CD20, I think, has been one of the, one of the key targets that, that people have looked yeah. at, you know, for, for bispecifics here. And we've had a couple of approvals that I think were basically within a few weeks of each other with, uh, with a Kinley and Columvi from, you know, Genmab, Abdi and Roche, respectively, as you mentioned. And I think that the you know, one of the really interesting things here is that particularly as these therapies look towards, you know, not only DLBCL, but indolent lymphomas like you know, mm -hmm. follicular lymphoma and other sort of um, indications like that, really having a, an improvement on kind of ease of administration, safety profile. I think those, you know, certainly in some of the work that, that we've done in these areas are really, I think, critically of interest to you know, clinicians and patients here, as opposed to, you know, obviously CAR-Ts have a pretty, pretty clear role in yeah. these indications, but I think this is this is a, a pretty big change in terms of, you know, potentially changing the way that that practice takes place. And I think there's a much clearer path to early line use for these bispecific products certainly. versus, yeah. uh, you know, versus CAR-Ts and certainly any kind of autologous therapy. Yeah. And maybe you can talk just between the two products a little bit about, you know, what they've shown, where they've headed, what maybe differentiates the two. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you, if you look across 
a lot of the coverage of, of the space. I think in terms of the the particulars of, of efficacy and safety, I think the, the general consensus is that they're they're largely similar. I think that one of the one of the key things is that um, Epkinley is subcutaneously administered um, chronically with kind of an indefinite dosing scheme. And if you look at the sort of Roche product, it's a you know fixed amount of time. I think maybe ten or twelve courses of therapy um, for an IV infusion. So. You know, I think on, on the one hand, you know, it's, it seems that the key differentiator is based on kind of the route of administration. And I think depending on which KOLs you, you listen to and which coverage you're reading, on the one hand, you know, people are interested in, so, you know, sub-Q being something that can be done kind of, you know, pretty much in the, I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's self-administered, but it's much you know easier than, than easier. being in an infusion clinic, exactly. Yeah. But it's a, you know, you sort of take it indefinitely versus, you know, do you want to do a kind of a fixed course you know, IV based therapy where, you know, you could show up for 10 courses and then, and then you're done with it. So I think that there's a, yeah. you know, it's not a clear win one way or the other. Um, but, but I do think, you know, it's put a lot of focus on, on this mechanism and really, you know, where, where it's going to move, I think is, is the, yeah. is the key thing. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that I, you know, one or both of these products are probably going to play more of a backbone type role here it would seem sure. or at least that's kind of the strategy that you know that gen mab and and, and roche have put forward for these yeah it's it's interesting that story about delivery and and subcutaneous versus iv because again outside of oncology it's sort of clearly sub q is going to be better right. right but this isn't necessarily something like psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis where you know, well, both serious diseases, you're not necessarily going to die from them, frankly. And then, you know, there's the whole other question about the oncologist sort of economic model with exactly bill and in office delivery and sort of the implication to that. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much of that drives beyond the data label expansion, et cetera, the choice of one versus another. And then, you know, you, you alluded to it before. I think the other question that's really interesting from us sort of strategically in thinking through how a physician's going to sort of go through their checklist and choose one element versus another is how these positioned against CAR T's, right? Given all the efficacy that those have showed balanced against, you know, not only the cost, but just the burden of treatment right. potentially. Yeah, I, I think it becomes a, you know, it's, it's a situation where DLBCL and these lymphomas are not really indications anymore, or even in these kind of later line settings, it just comes down to, okay, what are we looking at in terms of, you know, response rate and, and, and survival? It's really now, you know, how do you differentiate on some of these other, other features that are not, you know, purely based on just efficacy? It comes down to, right, exactly, like administration, safety burden, kind of timing of therapy, like how quickly can you treat someone? Yeah. I think all, all those types of things are you know, have, have sort of changing the calculus in this area, which, which is, you know, obviously I think for patients is a good thing. And it's, you know, kind of see how that, see how that changes the, the approach from the industry on additional advancements here. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So before we move on to the last topic, just going to pause here for those of you that don't listen to the end, I'm not sure why you wouldn't, but, and just put in a, a little ad to head over to our podcast page at www bblsa.com backslash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcast. You can submit a question if there's any topic or area of interest that you'd like Christian and myself or someone else from the Back Bay team to discuss. Happy to hear your thoughts. So with that ad over, we can go to the last topic, which is a big one. And certainly for anyone reading the industry press over the last week, there's been a lot of 
uh, virtual ink spilled or electrons burned on the CRISPR approvals in the United States. So XSL or CASGIVI was approved. And, and again, maybe we can talk about some of the other assets that are playing around in this space as well. So maybe, Christian, we, we can start this topic and sort of recap its approval and the general sentiment from clinicians on this big news event. Yep. So I think, uh, you know, as, as probably most of our listeners are aware, uh, you know, XSL is a, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 based gene editing therapy, you know, initially developed by CRISPR therapeutics that they've, you know, partnered with Vertex, um, who's going to be leading, you know, initial commercialization effort here. And it's approved in sickle cell disease. It showed a really marked improvement on recurrent episodes of sickle cell pain, uh, which are known as vasoocclusive crises which are basically just, you know, blockages of blood flow caused by sickled red blood cells that leads to oxygen deprivation, inflammation, and severe pain. It's one of the key, you know, defining symptoms of, of mm -hmm. sickle cell. Um, and it's also the most common cause of, of hospitalization. Um, and so, you know, there was very clearly, you know, positive data in adults with sickle cell uh, in the phase three study, which was sort of the basis for approval. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that there's, you know, Vertex and, and CRISPR are certainly looking to, m you know, move treatment to sort of adolescents and potentially pediatric patients as well with those studies ongoing. But I think that this has been largely has been met with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm from, you know, patient advocacy groups, clinicians, you know, patients alike, where there's a prospect for a kind of one time, you know, quote unquote cure to otherwise, a, you know, very debilitating, you know, genetic disease, um, which obviously is a positive thing from a, from a mm -hmm. clinical perspective. But I think as we'll get into, you know, the sort of what all kind of entails actually being treated with this is, uh, is I think, something to, to unpack. You know, it's a clear win for, you know, the prospects of gene editing approaches overall. You know, their XSL is also being developed for um, transfusion-dependent thalassemia. Mm -hmm. um, and there's obviously, you know, a range of other um, genetic diseases where there's gene editing products in, in development. So, you know, I think this is, a, this is a really significant event for that. But I think there's certainly some more complexities than just the therapy being available. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly sort of a, a watershed moment for the industry. And I'll just note to give a clear nod to our uh, European colleagues. It was technically approved earlier by the UK. Yes. And so, so again, you know, clearly, clearly a breakthrough, but you alluded to, you know, a number of sort of commercial and delivery uh, issues. So, so as folks are watching this initial rollout of Cascavi, can you talk a, a little bit about some of the key issues that people are thinking about? Yes. So, I, I think you know, there's there's really three three main things that I think there are the key things to keep in mind as, as we're thinking about how you know the initial rollout is going to play out here and and sort of you know the the overall trajectory of treatment with Exocell. The first being kind of the real world complexities associated with administering XSL. So mm -hmm. as, as many people probably know, this is an ex vivo gene editing therapy. So it requires editing of the patient's stem cells, you know, outside of the outside of the body, as the name would suggest, um, which is a relatively intensive process in terms of the patient is often hospitalized for weeks or, or even months over the course of treatment from both the kind of initial, you know, procedure to extract the patient's stem cells. They have to obviously be taken to, you know, an external manufacturing facility for the editing process. And in the meantime, the patient's going to receive, you know, myeloablative conditioning, which is generally, Bucelfan is generally used for that, mm -hmm. yeah. but prior to, you know, reintroduction of the edited stem cells. And I think the, you know, the conditioning piece is one of the one of the key, you know, aside from the kind of, you know, timing in in the hospital and over the overall timeline that it requires from start to finish here for the entire treatment process. I think the conditioning piece has really come to light as, you know, folks have, have started to dig into 
you know, what things are going to look like in the next, you know, one to two years here as, as, as the treatment comes online. Yeah. And the key thing, you know, really comes down to the toxicities associated with busulfan-based conditioning. And the, probably the, well, my, and I don't know if it's the most important, but one of the really key ones is the impact on compromising fertility for, for yeah. treated patients. And especially as, as we kind of mentioned before, you know, as CRISPR and Vertex are thinking of moving towards adolescent and potentially pediatric patients, that becomes an even more critical consideration as you're, you know, talking about potentially treating someone who's, you know, 12 or 14 years old. Sure. And yeah. They have to sort of think about compromising, you know, their, their long-term fertility in order to, to receive this, this therapy that you know, stands to that they stand to benefit greatly from. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, a lot more complexity than just, you know, showing up for a, uh, you know, one and done, I, you know, come to the physician's office exactly. and 15 yeah. minutes later, I'm good to yeah, go. Yeah, I yeah. think that there's a, there's a lot that, that goes into this, uh, in terms of these considerations. I'll maybe just jump in. And again, we're ver being very sort of Western market focused here. Yes. And I think again, given the underlying, uh, demographics of the patient population, there's a huge need in sub-Saharan Africa. And even leaving the pricing aside, you know, that issue of just the infrastructure to be able to deliver that is a is a huge issue to get this medicine into the folks that that need it outside of more westernized countries. Absolutely. You know, the as kind of thinking about about that lens, you know, obviously treatment's going to be dependent on, you know, centers that are able to, you know, perform a bone marrow transplant and, mm -hmm. you know, obviously in the US and Europe there are many of those. And, you know, a lot of Vertex's strategy has been around kind of focusing on I think 50 centers in the US and 25 in Europe that are sort of be will they'll sort of be the kind of key centerpieces of where treatment would take place. But I think to exactly to your to your point, Pete, if you're thinking about, you know, outside of those geographies, the accessibility of a center that is able to perform a bone marrow transplant is much more difficult. Um, I think the last time that we looked at some of the data there, there are only a handful um, of mm -hmm. or a, a, potentially less than that kind of centers in in all of the continent of Africa that are able to perform a, a bone marrow transplant. And so you think about, you know, not only that access to centers, but also the you know order of magnitude difference in, in prevalence of patient population there. I think, you know, th this is not going to be able to kind of address that in its current form. I think if we yeah. think towards you know, in vivo editing or sort of other types of sure. products, that'll yeah. be a lot, uh, theoretically, much more straightforward from a you know administration and, and sort of a, you know, production capacity point of view that remains to be seen. But I think as it, as it, as it currently stands, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of hurdles to, to being able to do this at scale. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, and then the, the last issue around sort of patient willingness and sort of the, the, the history here, there. Yeah. I, you know, I think sort of, sort of, again, given the demographics of the sickle cell population and how that, you know, generally skews towards black and African-Americans, at least in the U S you know, there's quite a bit of, you know, medical mistrust there based on, you know, some historical events. I think that, you know, as much as they are, have, have happened in sort of the, you know, 50s and 60s, there's quite a bit of memory of the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, you know, a number of other kind of medical experimentation type situations mm -hmm. where that just has served as a cautionary tale and is really not something that has been, you know, like generally generationally forgotten. I think uh, there was some some data that I saw and I think it uh, might have been a, in a stat article that basically was like 75% of, of black Americans still are acutely aware and think yeah, about yeah. these, you know, these particular events. And so 
I think much differently from other areas, you know, this sort of, you know, patient willingness, you know, potential mistrust of, of medicine. And particularly in this case, you know, this is a first of its kind therapy that introduces a permanent edit to the, to the genome. So there's a pretty talking about a pretty significant, you know, potential change here and, and risk. And I, I think it's, it's a completely founded concern to have from a, from the patient point of view. And it's certainly something that, you know, uh, I think both, you know, obviously Vertex and CRISPR, but also potentially patient advocacy groups, clinician groups. It's a sort of something that's a, a real practical challenge and yeah. have to ultimately, I think the, the only way to overcome this is with longer term efficacy and safety sure, data. Sure. But what that yeah. specifically means is, you know, I, I don't think I don't think anybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. A, a number of layers here when you think about what this could actually be as far as, you know, being able to treat patients, right? It's sort of the patient mistrust or hesitancy around, again, right. that that long-term edit. And then the next layer is what you've got to go through to get that, even if you're fine with a CRISPR-based therapy, the conditioning regimen and the, the implications there. And then lastly is, you know, are you even eligible for that, which sort of comes to the the pricing right. question, right? And so we didn't talk about it, but you also have Bluebird, which has Lifgenia, also approved the same day as as Exacel, which is again not technically a CRISPR-based product, but using uh, viral vectors to introduce a gene into the patient's stem cells, you know, with a similar process with regards to mobilization conditioning to a greater or lesser degree mm -hmm. and, and reintroduction. And so both Vertex CRISPR and Bluebird have announced their prices. Interestingly, Lifgenia is about $1 million more at give or take, you know, 3 million versus XSL at 2 million. So, you know, how that will shake out with respect to payers is also going to be interesting. Yeah, I can completely agree on, on that point. I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of talk about these given that, you know, the it's a sort of one-time payment and the a lot of the kind of sticker shock elements here have, I think, been something that's been been top of mind across the industry for a number of years. You know, I think I, I know that the, uh, I think you kind of mentioned before we jumped on this that sort of Bluebird had announced that they've reached an agreement with a major, you know, a major payer in the in the U.S. for for coverage. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess the details of that obviously will not be privy to. But I think you know one of the ways that even if the difference in kind of list prices is, is so is so different, you know, I think that payers have shown quite a willingness to engage in innovative contracting models for these types of therapies, where you know it is a bit easier for them to track, given that there are only you know so many patients in their plan that. Um, that are, you know, on these therapies at any given time. Um, and so, you know, I think it's very possible that even though there's such a difference there that, you know, it, it, it you know, is something that you could potentially work around with, a, with yeah. a payer from a contracting point of view. But then also, you know, I think a lot of the work that we've seen in the, in the rare disease or, or that we've done in the rare disease space is really that from a, you know, overall budget impact point of view, 20 individual payer, like these really, these aren't areas that are, a, you know, a big focus in terms of sure, utilization sure. management yeah. and kind of directing, you know, who gets treated with what, when, yeah. as opposed to, okay, how can I think about, you know, maybe getting a couple of extra percentage points on a few of my diabetes contracts or things exactly. in, you know, the yeah. heart disease space or whatever that, you know, are, are, are major budget line items for them. Um, so I think, you know, to some extent, I, I think that a lot of the concern, at least in, in the U.S., of the price differences is not materially that big of an issue. But at the same time, you know, 
until now we've kind of talked about this all in a theoretical sense of yep. you know exactly. of things and now there are actual benchmarks out there that you know payers can point to and really have to you know actually make these decisions so yeah um you know we'll see how, how that how that goes but i think there are a lot of kind of tools in place to to manage that yeah i know and if you listen to some of the comments in the press releases and the conference calls from bluebird right after their announcement of the approval and price setting is touting outcome based payment models that they're tying to mm -hmm. specifically hospitalizations and again sort of that's the one element that they're offering but based on some of our experience with payers you know it'll be interesting to see how often that's used right. for the basis of coverage decisions so Great. Well, we're, we're coming up on time here, Christian. So I just want to thank you again for uh, uh, another great review of the news here in the biotech and, and pharma space and looking forward to uh, many more conversations in, in 2024. It's always a good time, Pete. And thanks for having me on. Excellent. So as I said before, if you have any questions about biopharma and med tech development, partnering, licensing, and more, head over to our podcast page on our website and submit a question at www.bblsa.com backslash podcasts. We look forward to hearing from you and happy new year. <laughs>